Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, and welcome back. Today we are talking all about lifestyle. This is something that I am very passionate about because the more we learn about autism as an epigenetic condition, the more we start to realize that lifestyle really matters. What we know for sure is that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to autism, but there are simple and effective strategies that all children can benefit from, such as eating real food and eliminating chemicals from around the home. Today we are talking to Shandy Lasky. Shandy is an integrative speech-language pathologist pediatric feeding specialist, as well as an epidemic answers health coach. She is currently duly enrolled in two holistic bio-individual nutrition therapy programs, where she is specifically studying nutrition for children on the autism spectrum. In her spare time, Shandy enjoys getting creative in the kitchen and taking full advantage of the outdoors in the beautiful Rocky Mountains all year round. Welcome, Shandy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I look at all the other people who have been on your podcast, and it's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm honored to be here. Uh, absolute pleasure. You are um, you're an inspiration to me. The wealth of knowledge that you have, I'm just ready to soak it all up. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's rewind the clock a little bit, and I would love to know how you came to working with children with special needs. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, when I, when I entered college, I was torn between whether I wanted to study medicine or whether I wanted to teach and go into education. Um, specifically, I was very interested in special education. My mother and my sister both have dyslexia. And um, so growing up, I'd seen the challenges that having a learning, uh, a learning disorder posed. Um, for my mom, you know, I saw... I saw the challenges that she faced as an adult. And for my sister, um, you know, I can remember watching her struggle, doing her homework and um, various challenges that she had growing up as well. So when I entered college, I juggled that. And ultimately, I decided, okay, I think I'll do special education. Well, I started a few introductory special education courses, and I took this one course called Communication Disorders in the Special Population. And um, it was really the first time, like, I'd always, I've, I've always been smart. I've always done well in school, but it was the first time that I actually excelled easily. I wanted the information. I wanted to go to class. I made the dean's list that semester, and I just felt so drawn to that information. And so um, really, I felt so called to speech and language pathology from that point on. And so um, here, it's an incredibly competitive field in the United States. So the process of getting into your master's program is quite rigorous. I don't know what it's like there. But um, so that was you know, challenging in and itself. But once I realized that I wanted to work with children with different abilities, my mind was set and my heart was set on that. And that I knew that that was my goal. Mm. And I'm interested, how did you make the transition from speech pathology, which is very much um, the traditional type of therapy, to exploring the effects of the environment, which is a bit more of an alternative approach to autism? Mm. Yeah, great question. So, um, I made that transition or like that connection really um, from speech language pathology into exploring the environment really through my own health experience. So um, when I had entered my graduate school for my master's program, um, my plan was to specialize in what we call here listening and spoken language. And um, that's for children with cochlear implants and children who are deaf and hard of hearing. So that was what I was focused on. And um, my first semester of my graduate career, I developed a chronic illness. And my usual disclaimer before I start this story is, um, please don't hear my story and pity me at any point of it. Um, because even though it was a devastating time in my life, in hindsight, I've learned so much. And I believe that 
what happened to me was truly a gift and has led me down this path of the work that I'm currently doing now. But um, what happened was um, maybe about nine months after uh, the placement of a common birth control IUD, I developed a wide range of symptoms that were synonymous with multiple chemical sensitivities, fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, among other um, health issues. My symptoms started with anxiety, which I attributed to, I just started grad school, you know, I, I can be anxious, I just started graduate school. And then I developed really deep hormonal cystic acne that um, seemed really out of the norm for me. I also developed um, a very physical feeling of very physical feeling of anxiety and then food and environmental sensitivities, uh, sound and light sensitivities, which were never something that I had experienced. I would be watching TV and, um, especially at night, it would be, you know, let's shut all the lights off. Like I can't watch TV. It just was too much for me. Every bone, every joint, every muscle in my body felt as if it hurt all the time. I had insomnia, but yeah, I was fatigued all day and um, I had laid down to fall asleep and I couldn't. My hair was falling out in chunks. Um, you know, something was really, really wrong with me. And um, to make a long story short, I felt like the doctors within the allopathic medical system were not hearing me or my concerns. And after being bounced around, searching for answers, um, ultimately the the choice was you can go on pain and anxiety medications and accept these diagnosis of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm not passing any judgment on anyone who decides to take medications at all. Um, there's definitely a time and a place, but I knew in my heart that something was really underlying uh, the cause of the issues that I was experiencing. And so um, I was told that there was no known cause and no known cure for the condition that I had and just, you know, go about my business. And um, after many hours of rigorous research by myself, I found different ways where I could take matters into my own hands and change my lifestyle and the food I was eating to manage my symptoms. Um, that was a pretty wild time in my life because I started learning all of these truths about the food system, the healthcare system, um, all of these systems that were put into place to protect us that I had learned had these weird ties and corruptions that made me feel really uncomfortable. And um, I realized the things that we use every single day are not being regulated to the degree in which we think that they are. We assume that if it's on the shelf, it must be safe. And um, I'm not super familiar with the Australian standards and regulations, but at least here, um, I can tell you that things are not being regulated to the degree in which we think they are for safety. So um, when I started switching over to organic foods, non-GMO foods, low toxicant products, I found that my symptoms not only improved, but my condition became more manageable. And um, it, it kind of seemed like I was always keeping my cup from overflowing, if you will. I, I kind of use this um, analogy for children with sensory regulation challenges as well, right? You don't want to keep their cup from overflowing. Well, that's how I felt with my chemical intolerances and my food sensitivities was if I can keep myself at bay, I can keep myself from going into a flare or triggering, that kind of thing. Finally, mind you, this is all while I'm going through graduate school, right? Which <laughs> I'm sure you can relate is not the time to be going down this journey of, you know, completely rehauling your lifestyle and all of that, but I had no other options. I, I literally had to, to stay afloat. And um, again, in hindsight, I'm so thankful that I did. I don't know what would have, what would have, actually transpired with my health. I have no idea what would have actually happened, but 
I landed in the care of a naturopathic doctor and a nutritional therapist who was also a registered nurse. And together, they helped me identify that my body was um, struggling with a major toxicity burden, primarily from silicone and mercury, which were substances that I had acquired from uh my previous healthcare providers. And basically that toxicity sparked that downward spiral of the health challenges that I was facing. And it was actually through those women that helped me, that helped my understanding and my realization that autism is also a whole body epigenetic condition as well, um, which they told me because they found out I was studying to be an SLP. So that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. I have not heard that story. So um, it really puts it in perspective, like your passion and your drive and why you're so passionate about what you do. Um, yeah. I would love to put this in a little bit of perspective for people listening in because I think it's really important for parents to understand why we're talking about lifestyle um, because we know, as you said, it's not just Autism isn't just a genetic condition. Um, It's not just passed down from parent to child. There are other factors that are involved. So could you talk a little bit about autism as an epigenetic condition and how our current understanding of autism is directing a new approach? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite topics. (laughs) I love talking about it. Um, So first... Before I start going down this path, I just want to highlight that there, what, what we've found is that there is an approximate 17 gap, 17 year gap in research from when research comes out to when it is largely accepted by mainstream. Um, so while some of these topics or um, the things that we're going to talk about here seem new, some of it in a way is new, but in other ways, it's really not, you know, we, we've, we have a lot of literature that's been coming out in the last few decades um, to show that autism is an epigenetic whole body condition. But the challenge is that a lot of providers, myself previously included, were not seeing that research. So, you know, this is not information that I got when I was in my master's program. This is not information that I got when I was in an autism class, the whole class was an autism class. I never got this information. Um, it's all information that I have had to go above and beyond as a provider to learn and understand myself. And um, truly, it is. it really grinds my gears when people say there's no research to support it because um, the reality is that there's a lot of research to support it. And there's so much research that I can hardly keep up with the rate in which it's coming out. So um, there's constant emerging literature demonstrating that autism is in fact an epigenetic condition, but let's dive into what that means a little bit more. So epigenetics is the study of the heritable changes in gene function without actually changing the DNA sequence itself. So there's a popular saying that, um, you know, your genes load the gun, but the environment actually pulls the trigger. Well, quite literally, um, you know, in that sense, you could say we are what we eat. You know, nutrigenomics is the epigenetic study of how food specifically impacts the expression of our genes. So um, your environmental exposures, your lifestyle, your food decisions – really play the larger role in how our genes are expressed. So our gene expressions can be turned on, they can be turned off through our environmental exposures and food choices. Now, some of those are positive and some of those are not so positive. But really, I think the biggest thing here is that, um, you know, previously we we had this idea, and I, I, I think – Sadly, too many still have this idea that autism is purely psychological. You know, it's, it's just a special rewiring of the brain or um, 
like you said, it's, it's purely genetic. It's just, it was going to happen inevitably. Nothing you can do about it passed from mom or dad onto the child. Um, and what we know now is that in most cases, that's just not true. Um, so the literature shows that autism is neurological, not psychological. And if it's neurological, then that means that the underlying biology of the body will influence the brain. So if you are, you know, extremely unhealthy, then you're going to have some cognitive functioning impacts there. Um, and sometimes, you know, children with autism, they don't always present with, um, with health issues, not always, but the, the, there is an actual alarming rate of comorbidity um, for autism. So there are underlying conditions like food and environmental sensitivities, like I experienced. Um, we also know that autoimmune and thyroid conditions are uh, strongly related. Uh, in addition to underlying toxicity or nutritional deficiencies, seizure disorders, uh, epilepsy, anxiety, asthma, mitochondrial dysfunctioning, attention challenges. There are a lot of comorbidities that occur in autism. And sadly, many of these comorbid, comorbid conditions and health challenges that are faced by kids on the spectrum are often minimized by many providers that they work with. And, um, which I think is so sad, right? It, nothing makes me more frustrated than when I hear, oh, that's just autism, right? A child banging their head on the floor, self-injurious behaviors, fecal smearing. Oh, that's just autism. Is it, is it, or is that that's that child's way of communicating that something is internally very wrong here. Something is imbalanced in some sort of way that is causing challenges with behavior and mood and learning and their health. And oftentimes when we address these underlying bio-individual needs and challenges that they have, we actually see many improvements in their health and their behavior and in learning. So you know, really, I kind of say sometimes I do what I do now so that other speech therapists can be effective speech therapists, because you almost have to take that, that layer from or that veil, right, lift that veil so that therapies can be most impactful and most effective. Mm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And that was such a, a Beautiful overview and summary, um, and I think that really puts it in perspective. There is, there's just so much that I want to cover with, um, with you, but let's start with food because eating is one of the most important daily habits. Um, so food can either be a step towards health or it can be a step away from health. So how can changes to the diet affect a child's behavior? Because autism, we've got to remember, is currently only behaviorally defined. So if we can sort of make this link, that might help us out a little bit. Absolutely. So um, I've seen so many various improvements in children's behavior. So again, there's this kind of... Um, there's, there's almost this misunderstanding when you start talking about diet and autism that, you know, oh, I don't need to try the diet because my kid's pooping every day and they're not having digestive issues. They're fine. Um, but really, truly, food impacts people in many different ways. And um, specifically, foods like gluten and dairy um, have been found in children with autism to create an opiate-like response in their bodies and brains. And, and um, so, so it's not just limited to children with digestive distress. I've seen children um, who change their diet and have improvements in behavior overall. I've seen uh, major improvements in speech and language. I've seen, pardon me, uh, improvements in anxiety and, in and attention, uh, sensory sensitivities, motor planning, willingness to eat new foods, um, you know, you name it, the list goes on and on. And then, you know, when kids are just behaviorally in a better space, you're going to have less of that rigidity, less of those power struggles, and so on. Um, and, and then going back to the, uh, the opioid response in the body, 
I especially see um, diet impact picky eating, right? Because oftentimes what I hear is, well, they only eat chicken nuggets and they only eat mac and cheese and they only want pizza and they only want a lot of white starchy, carby foods, a lot of gluten and a lot of dairy. And, um, you know, if you were eating those foods and it was causing a drug-like response, you would want those foods too all the time, right? But when you remove those foods and you allow the body to process those out, all of a sudden the range of food just opens up and you see those behaviors improve and that rigidity relax a little bit and uh, willingness to try other foods. So I'd say those are the most major improvements that I've seen. Um, but it really surprises me uh, for each kid and individual, what, what will occur. Mm. I think we need to be mindful that, you know, food is the foundation and the building blocks for health. For everyone, you know, not just kids on the spectrum, but because they are particularly fussy eaters, we need to really address it because we know food and what we put into our body affects behavior. You know, if someone has a glass of wine or a few too many beers, we know that that's going to affect their coordination and their speech. Um, you know, so I think sometimes parents just need to understand that connection. So that is awesome. Um, but in terms of the fussy eaters, you know, and there's so much information out there, where do parents start? Because there is, you know, we've got information at our fingertips these days, but it, it can become so overwhelming. What should parents be adding to the diet and what should parents be removing from the diet? Is there some sort of standard basic protocol that parents can just simply follow before they sort of go into testing and all those sorts of different things? Absolutely. I think so. Um, so to me, and like you said, this can be very overwhelming when you start to go down this road. So I always tell parents that I'm working with, be gentle with yourself. It's about progress. It's not about perfection. You cannot do this all overnight. And even if you could, your child probably can't. So you know, we have to work at a rate in which the child is willing to accept these new foods as well. Um, I, to me, my first and foremost step toward, towards this for parents is um, removing the Franken food, right? Removing and eliminating food that is not actually food. Food dyes, food additives, um, artificial flavors, you know, I mean, a, a lot of these food chemicals, again, we think that they are tested and safe for consumption, and the reality is that they are are not. And um, many of them are derived from petroleum. And just really, they're not, they're not meant for human consumption. And so, um, especially for kids who have hyperactivity, aggression, uh, those are immediate, get those out of there. And so that, you know, really, that can look as simple as taking your breakfast cereal that has artificial dyes and flavors and just swapping that for an organic option that's super similar, you know, eventually we would want you transitioning to something a little bit more nutrient dense, but the immediate jump shouldn't be from, you know, sugar laden colored cereal to the most nutrient dense breakfast you can get. I mean, it's just too hard for families. So, um, you know, you go from, pizza to pizza, from crackers to crackers, but you choose the healthier option. You choose the, the option that has less chemicals. Um, speaking of chemicals, I would also add in agricultural chemicals. So this is where the importance of organic actually does matter, right? Because we know that even if it's not genetically modified, many conventional plants are being sprayed with um, glyphosate-based herbicides, whether it's Roundup or another glyphosate-based herbicide, but that is a whole other talk for another time on the toxicity of that herbicide itself. Um, I think those alone are critical steps in where to start. Um, in terms of what you can add to the diet, so, so the first step is swapping, right? And then I would say the next step is to add before you focus on removing all of the, all of the bad. So adding in 
nutrient-dense foods. And I will also say the earlier and younger we can do this for children, the better, because it helps develop their palate. So even if you're listening and your child is not on the autism spectrum, or they are, these are all really great foods that you can introduce for brain and gut health for children that are going to develop their palate over time and also are highly, highly nutrient dense. But um, I'm a big proponent of bioindividuality. So keep in mind that even though these are the standard that typically work for everybody, um, there are, there are kids that will react to various things that might be considered healthy. Um, and some people might do well, some people may not, but, uh, some nutrient dense foods to think about would be things like, you know, how, how we can add in veggies to various plates, whether that's pureeing some squashes or, um, ricing a cauliflower or making cauliflower into chicken nuggets or, you know, nuggets, cauliflower nuggets, zucchini noodles. You know, there's so much with just squash, zucchini, and cauliflower that you can do. Um, and those seem to be pretty widely accepted veggies uh, to start with. And then things that are fermented like sauerkraut or, um, you know, you could even add in those healthy fats like avocado or um, high fat, high protein fish like uh, sardines or salmon. I like both of those choices because they are low mercury as well. And then things like um, grass-fed liver from beef or poultry, which I know some people might, you know, raise an eyebrow at because traditionally we've gotten so far away from eating liver, but truly it is um, one of the most nutrient-dense foods that you can find. And I truly believe that uh, adding grass-fed liver into my own diet saved my adrenal functioning. Um, but also things like pumpkin and um, other foods that are going to be high in zinc and healthy fats and iron and, you know, good fermentables for your gut bacteria. I actually have a, um, a handout on um, speaking of health and wellness.com under freebies. I have a nutrients for uh, nutrients for a healthy brain and where to find them. It's a free handout. You can go there for more of that. And then in terms of what parents should consider removing from their diet, um, we already mentioned chemicals and food, which um, that's super important. But then second, I would look at reducing refined sugar. So we've, we've all heard those, uh, those studies that are coming out saying that sugar lights up the brain like cocaine, which is quite scary. Um, but also in addition to agricultural chemicals, food additives and sugars, as I mentioned, um, from what I have seen and what I have learned most children with neurodevelopmental disorders and special needs tend to do best on a, a balanced, healthy, organic gluten casein, which is the protein found in milk and dairy, casein and soy-free diet, and um, which is kind of overwhelming, you know, when, when you first hear that, but it can be done, and that that's when I start to see the most improvement with gluten removal, especially. And, you know, families often ask me, you know, what would you start with? I think it depends. It depends on the family, uh, whether you'd start with gluten or dairy. I, th I think that's really an individual choice. But what I always tell them is the dairy antibody takes approximately three weeks to leave the body. Okay. So if you're going to remove dairy and you're going to cheat on dairy, or you're going to cheat on either one of them, let it be dairy, okay? The gluten can take up to three to six months to leave the body. Um, and, and what we know is that gluten and dairy and soy, those protein molecules, can set off um, like a chronic systemic inflammation underlying, in addition to causing opioid responses like we talked about earlier. But um, so... I always think, you know, if families can do a fair and honest three-month trial, being gluten-free with zero cheats, 
then they'll truly know whether or not that's worth it for them. But, um, but it's really important to note that because I've heard families say, well, diet didn't work for me or the diet didn't work for my kid. And then I start talking more and it turns out they didn't follow it to the T. And unfortunately, when it comes to gluten and casein, it doesn't matter if it is a drop or a whole loaf of bread, the body knows there's gluten and the body is going after it. Um, You know, I've even known children who are so sensitive that they cannot play with Play-Doh because it contains wheat and it absorbs into their bloodstream. So, um, you know, after removing it from the diet, my next line is to say, okay, now look at where they may be exposed through their hygiene products. You know, their bubble bath, their shampoo, conditioner, various products, you know, Play-Doh of all things. Um, yeah. So, so I think it's really important to note that for gluten and dairy and, and even soy, it really has to be an all or nothing across the board before you make that true judgment, but know, know that there are going to be mistakes that are made and hold grace for yourself on those days that that happens because it happens. It even happened, has happened with me, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So I suppose a lot of parents will be listening in going, wow, so much information. Um, and it's amazing, but for the, the parents who have the kids with the really fussy eaters and they know they're taking all this in and they're going, yeah, Okay. I'm motivated again. I'm going to go home. I'm going to start making some changes. But the really fussy eaters, the reality is you can put a plate in front of them, um, you know, and it will get thrown on the floor or, um, you know, it's not going to get eaten. They're very stubborn. They will not be touching it. Um, There will be meltdowns and all sorts of challenging behaviours that go along with this. Um, And parents will be thinking, you know, I would if I could. So, For these really fussy eaters, what are some um, just strategies that you'd recommend for parents? Absolutely. So for the really fussy eaters, even though it seems very daunting, those are the children that often need that gluten-free, casein-free diet the most. And I know that that, again, sounds so daunting, but... And I think this is important for parents and for therapists to know as well, you know, especially us SLPs and OTs, because you can, you can address all the sensory and all the oral motor um, strategies that you want. But if the underlying challenge is that they have a food addiction, right, from opiates, responding in their body, or if they have a underlying nutritional deficiency, for example, like zinc, um, those, those need to be addressed first too, right? So it's almost like you come at it from a behavioral lens, but also an underlying lens. So for children who have um, what appears to be a sensory aversion in terms of smells and tastes for food, I would say let's look at zinc. So um, you can do a very low-level supplement of zinc to try to boost those levels up. You can also work with your doctor to test uh, zinc serum levels and boost those up through that way. Um, I, I do find that a low-level zinc for a short amount of time just to try to build that back up generally does work for most people. It kind of lessens that um, I put the plate down and now I'm, I'm having a meltdown, right? Where it's, I don't even want to see that food. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to taste it. None of that. Oftentimes those are children who have underlying zinc deficiencies. Now, again, I am a speech language pathologist feeding therapist, so I can't, I'm, I'm not discounting at all the structural and functional challenges that some of these kids do have, especially children who also have a diagnosis of apraxia or, um, children who have uh, tethered oral tissues like anterior posterior tongue tie or an upper lip tie, sometimes those children have a very high arched palate, which can cause picky eating and make them feel unsafe. So after you rule all those things out, that's when I would start looking at a zinc deficiency. 
Um, but overall, in terms of like strategies at the table, here we are. My biggest recommendation is to take off the pressure. There is so much pressure that parents place on children to eat when it's just presented right in front of them. And we have to remember that these children are innate human beings and they are little humans learning through sensory experiences eating. And so, you know, we know that it can take over a dozen times of just exposing a child to foods before they'll even consider trying it, right? And then you add these other components in there and you can up that number to about 30, right? So I try to give as much choice as I can within mealtimes. What plate do you want? What cup do you want? You know, um, if it's possible and the child is old enough, I love doing self-served dinners where, you know, we're putting, we're putting it in the middle and everybody's going to take a scoop of green beans or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, and then now we've interacted with it. And even if we don't eat it, we've still interacted with it in that way. So I guess the long version of this story or this uh, explanation is it depends on the family and it depends on the child, depends on the age, and it depends on where they're starting. Um, the biggest thing I try to do from a behavioral standpoint is to remove the pressure and add in ways that the child feels more in control to lower that anxiety. So um, I also am a huge, huge fan of food education outside of the mealtime to lower that anxiety, whether that's we're playing kitchen or we're playing grocery store or we're really at the grocery store and you're going to pick out the apples. Even if you don't eat apples, wow, thanks for picking these out. These are so yummy. You picked a really good one. You know, different ways that we can expose and educate about food, but also reducing that pressure. And, and I find that when parents go into the mealtime with the expectation that their child will eat it, it, it creates almost this anxiousness within the parent. Then kind of creates this mood around mealtime. You know what I mean? Especially if mealtimes are already challenging for me and I go in with a, my mom, my mom's feeling anxious about this. I can feel she's feeling anxious about this and I'm a toddler. So now I'm taking advantage of that and power struggling, you know? Mm, absolutely. I think one of the most important things that we can address is that stress response and bringing those stress levels down. Um, because it, it helps everyone across the board. Um, I'd love to make a transition into gut health now because I know you are super passionate about the gut and how it relates to autism. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about this now. So let's dive into gut health and the gut-brain connection. So could you explain how, you know, to people who have no idea about this, what is the gut-brain connection? Yeah, absolutely. So... We are still learning so much about the gut-brain connection, and um, there are a few different ways that we now know the gut and the brain are connected, but um, just to keep it very simple for today's purposes, basically, the gut-brain connection refers to uh, the bi-directional communication pathways between our digestive system and our central nervous system. And we also know that our immune systems and our endocrine systems are largely involved as well. So essentially, what we think about in terms of gut health, what I kind of think about, you know, we talk a lot about our good gut bacteria versus our bad gut bacteria, and you want to have that that balance there. But I also want to highlight um, a term that's often referred to as leaky gut. Um, but in the literature, you'll find it as uh, intestinal hyperpermeability. And um, basically, think about from our mouth to our bottom, we should be an open end to open end system, but closed throughout the digestive tract. Okay. So we should be able to chew and swallow our food. It makes its way to our digestive system and in the gut, there are these little 
villi that are little finger-like cells that line the intestinal tract. And they should be permeable enough to let in properly digested food particles. However, what happens is through exposure to various food chemicals, environmental toxicants, gluten, dairy, soy, these molecules that are, are damaging to the gut lining in those V-lines, it can almost blow bigger holes, if you will, into that lining there. And then it's not only the digested food particles that enter the bloodstream, it's undigested food particles and various pathogens and toxicants that can now enter the bloodstream. From the bloodstream, now we're talking about pathogens and molecules that were never meant to enter the body in this way that are now free-floating the body and can make it to the brain. And often these tight junctions that are leaky within the intestinal lining, once that intestinal lining gets leaky, these same molecules and pathogens can then go to the brain and wreak havoc on the blood-brain barrier and the tight junctions of the brain which then that's how we get into, okay, these food chemicals are being digested and then going to the brain and, and exciting children in that way or adults even, you know? So, um, you know, anxiety, depression, even schizophrenia has been shown now to be related to that gut-brain connection and that underlying biochemistry. And not only is the gut-brain connection so critically involved, but your, your gut and the gut bacteria are really what help that genetic expression that we talked about earlier. So um, gut health is, is major, major, major. So how does that relate to kids on the spectrum? And what are some simple sort of steps that parents can do? Because I know you did mention, you know, just about sauerkraut and a few other things. Is there anything else that parents can do? And, and how is it related to autism? Yeah, so I think it's just, you know, kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about what foods to remove and what foods to add in, right? You want to remove the gut offenders, like those large protein molecules, gluten, uh, casein, and then looking at the food chemicals that we talked about, which also wreak havoc on the gut. So removing the bad and then adding in the good. So your healers are going to be, you know, like bone broths, like you said, the sauerkraut, um, different probiotics and um, other, I mean, you can ferment so many things, right? You can ferment all sorts of veggies. Uh, but, but I do want to put some caution around that too, because sometimes these gut healing foods can look like they exacerbate um, symptoms in autism, but really, it's almost as if these children are having a healing reaction. Um, I've, I've also heard it referred to as a like a slingshot effect, where they will um, seems like things are getting better, and then it kind of goes back, and then it goes forward again. You know, where it kind of is up and down. And what can happen is, as you start adding in some of these fermented foods, the good bacteria within those fermented foods. Uh, if you will, goes to war with the bad bacteria in the gut. And so um, sometimes that can look like, pardon me, behavioral challenges or um, digestive distress like diarrhea or constipation, uh, that type of thing. But, you know, really gut health is so important for this population because it is truly the underlier. As you said, food is the foundation for our health. and in my mind, gut health is really hand in hand with that, right? Gut health and food are really the foundation of how our body regenerates, how our cells express or how our DNA expresses and how, how our cells regenerate and repair themselves. So um, it's really important all the way down to that foundational level, not only in terms of behavior, but appetite and motor functioning as well, motor planning. So, um, you know, there's also some good research to implicate that uh, children of apraxia can also benefit from from diet changes and lifestyle changes. And we know, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe a recent study found it was 
two-thirds of the children who were diagnosed with autism were then later diagnosed with uh, apraxia as well. So in terms of how um, motor functioning and motor planning is being impacted in autism, I think that this is huge to look at gut health. And I think that this is where speech and language can be improved so greatly because not only are you lifting that veil for language to be received in a more meaningful way where they can receive it and respond, but also you're improving the motoric planning in which they need to then get their message out in that clear and concise way. Mm. Awesome. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and head to low-tox because, you know, food is one thing that parents can do. You know, this that is within their control. And reducing chemicals and toxins around the house is another really empowering thing to do because it is totally within their control. They can control, um, you know, what what they clean the kitchen um, sink with and what they clean the bathroom and toilet with and what they put in the shower and what they mop the floors with. Um, and this can make a really big difference. So, and, and I think too, particularly for kids on the spectrum who are more vulnerable to um, a little hit like, you know, the spray and wipe or whatever it is they're using around the house, the kids on the spectrum are more vulnerable and it's going to tip them much easily over that edge. Um, and so what are everyday toxins that we are being exposed to that we don't, don't even realize? Yeah. So this is, um, I really, I really like this topic because it's so fascinating to me, but I also try to be so mindful that it can be very scary for people who are new to the topic. And so, um, you know, the scary reality is that it's a toxic world that we live in. We are surrounded by them. Um, but I think the common toxicants that are, that I think are avoidable, but commonly aren't, um, would be fluoride. Does Australia fluoridate their water? Mm -hmm. You do. Okay. We do as well. Um, but I know there are many European countries that do not because Harvard has classified it as a known neurotoxin. We know that. Um, and, and who's to say what is the appropriate dose for anyone? I just, you know, I, I want to label fluoride as a toxicant here because I think some people misinterpret that it is like a supplement, um, that we're being given through our water and, uh, it's not like it's not an essential thing that we all need here, and so um, and in addition, the fluoride that is added to our water is not actually the naturally occurring fluoride. It is um, an agricultural byproduct, which is uh, pretty repulsive. And I don't remember giving consent to be in that <laughs> in that experiment. Um, the other toxicants that I think we're exposed to that we could certainly cut down on that we're not even aware of is, um, again, agricultural chemicals like pesticides and herbicides. So, um, you know, even, even if it's non-GMO, conventional products are oftentimes sprayed with agricultural chemicals. So, again, even if it's not GMO, it still is being sprayed with chemicals that are linked to cancer and neurodevelopmental disabilities and other health challenges. And then lastly, I think, uh, fragrances, right? Like fragrance is this chemical toxicant loophole. And essentially if you see the word fragrance or perfume, it can mean it is, you know, up to three or 4,000 various chemicals. And, and I know that uh, you shared a little bit about that on your Instagram recently about how, how many there are in our environment that we're not even thinking about. Because again, we think that people have already regulated these products. If it's sold in the store, it must be safe. Again, that is not true. We unfortunately have a system that relies on consumers to prove that the product is unsafe 
before they actually pull it, rather than proving that it's safe before it goes up on the shelf. It's a bit backwards to me, but um, I, I would say these are the most everyday toxins that we're not even thinking about. Mm. And how, how are these toxins affecting the health of our children? So going back just to epigenetics, right? You think about the cellular level. When we, like for example, me, I am exposed to fragrance and it immediately triggers an immune response for me. I start to feel a post-nasal drip. I start to get like sinus congestion and just ugh, tired and achy, you know, depending on how long I'm able to how long I stay in it and how I'm able to remove myself and detox and whatnot. Um, but the way that it impacts the health of the child is on a cellular level and then back to that gut brain connection, right? So we inhale these toxicant chemicals, like you were saying from sprays or from wipes or whatever. And ideally that would be inhaled and then processed through that good gut bacteria, through those tight junctions and excreted from the body. But if a child has a compromised gut lining, which we know many children on the spectrum do, and many, many individuals in our modern society do. I mean, if we're really being realistic, most people struggle with this intestinal hyperpermeability and they, they don't really realize that they do. Um, because it's insidious damage that occurs over time. And what had happened to me, and oftentimes what happens in children who have regressive autism, is that there's one major event that destroys that, but for some it can be very insidious. Um, so I think it just, it just depends on the child of what was their toxic burden before and what is their toxic toxicant exposure that they're being exposed to? How are they methylating and, and processing these chemicals out? You know, um, really it's bio-individual in terms of how they'll react to various toxins and chemicals. But um, epigenetically, we know that it is, it is certainly impacting children all the way down on a cellular level. And if it's impacting at the cellular level, it's going to impact organ level and whole body functioning. Mm. And I think, too, we intuitively know that these things, you know, spraying our food with pesticides, you know, isn't great. And we know that um, some of the chemicals that we use around the house isn't great. Um, but we sort of have been brought up in this culture and, you know, our, our parents have used it and our grandparents have sort of used it and, you know, and we just continue that tradition and it really takes us to stop that cycle. Um, so what are some things that parents can do today? They're listening, they're keen, they want to start making some changes. What can they do to reduce some of the toxins that they're exposing themselves and their children to and, you know, and not even knowing? What can they do? So. For this, I think it goes back to having that gentleness with yourself, knowing that you cannot overhaul your entire life overnight. Um, you know, it's been five years since I started my own health journey, and I can tell you that there are still things that I am, you know, better but not perfect at, and I'm, I'm a constant work in progress. And I think that our, our families who have children on a spectrum need to also hold that grace and space for themselves as well. Um, but I think the most empowering thing that you can do is to look at where these toxicant chemicals are lurking within your home, right? So um, cleaners under the sink, you know, are filled with toxicant chemicals. And many of those things can be replaced by essential oils, shout out doTERRA and, um, <laughs> and, you know, things like vinegar and baking soda and salt and lemons, you know, that is literally the extent of what I use to clean my home. That's it. Not only is it frugal, but it is freeing you up of all those toxicant chemicals that were in the environment. There was a NASA study Oh, I forget what year it was, but um, NASA found that our indoor air quality is actually more polluted and more toxic, toxic than the outdoor air quality. And the reason being is because our furniture is off-gassing, um, which is another topic, but um, furniture off-gasses chemicals. 
and carpet off-gases chemicals, our cleaning supplies, our cleaning chemicals, uh, fragrances going back to candles and Febreze and all the sprays and air fresheners that are so unnecessary. Again, all of those things can just be switched out with safer and more natural solutions, you know? Um, Yeah, essential oils, vinegar, salt, baking soda, it's all you need. Mm. Um, so in addition to that, you know, looking at, um, in terms of agricultural chemicals, I recommend following the dirty dozen by the environmental working group. Are you familiar with them? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I assume in Australia, you could get this on your phone, but I don't know. You tell me. Um, but there's an app by the environmental working group called dirty dozen app and it's free. And it just is the list of what are the top uh, 12 dirtiest produce that we should always be buying organic. And if you can just follow that list, you're going to reduce that chemical exposure tremendously. You know, um, things like avocados and bananas and, and, you know, whatnot, those are on the clean 15 list, which the dirty dozen also highlights. So you know that you can buy those conventionally or organic for those of us who are balling on a budget, you know? Um, so there's a way. And then also last two would be removing fragrance. So again, looking at all the products in your home, if it says fragrance, that is a chemical loophole. If it says perfume, that is a chemical loophole. That can be thousands of chemicals that were never tested for the safety of the environment or human health. And even if it smells good, it can, it can induce harm. It can induce harm. Um, so opt for something that is more... Uh, safe and sustainable for you, like essential oils or different hydrosols and flower waters and things like that. And then lastly, getting a really high quality water filter. Um, Water is life, but we could do a much better job um, at the government and industrial level, keeping our water safe and clean. So um, personally, I use a Berkey water filter, which is a gravity-based water filtered system that uh, filters all, all your basic toxins and medications that are circulated back into the water system. But most importantly, um, I love that the Berkey water system filters fluoride and arsenic because many uh, filters do not like the Brita and, and common ones don't oftentimes filter fluoride and arsenic down to that level. Mm. Wow. Thank you. That is just amazing. So much information. I know parents are going to be rewinding this and just listening to it over and over and again, just to soak it all up. Um, So much information, wealth of knowledge. Um, Love it. Let's head to the five rapid fire questions now. So number one, what is one habit that our listeners can implement today? So I have two that I think are really important. (laughs) Um, The first would be to just get yourself into the habit of reading labels. And I don't mean the marketing that's on the front. I mean, flip it over and go to the fine print detail of what it actually says. And at first, this is going to be intimidating because it looks like a bunch of chemistry terms. Um, But the reality, especially for food, is that if you don't know what it is, you might want to research it because your body might not know what it is or what to do with it either. So the first would be to get in that habit of reading labels on your food, on your products, everything that's going to come in contact with you or your child's body, whether that's placing in or, you know, rubbing on. Um, The second habit that I think that we could all start to implement is to just practice gratitude each and every day and realize that, Transitioning over to a holistic nutrition and low-toxicant lifestyle is, once again, a process. And we can get so hung up on um, striving for perfectionism and being nitpicky. And sometimes the um, low-tox living realm kind of feels judgmental. Um, But it's important to just practice gratitude each and every day and acknowledge and celebrate where you and your child are within that journey and find the reasons to be grateful that you're on this journey. 
um, and, and focus on when you know better, you do better. Lovely. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? This is such a hard one. So previously I would have said, how can holistic nutrition and low tax skin lifestyle <laughs> help my family or um, help my child? But now, now that that question is being asked of me doing what I'm doing now. And um, I, I think it would be how, how can holistic nutrition and low tax living impact my entire family versus just my child. So, um, you know, depending on ages of siblings and habits of the parents, there are sometimes unforeseen challenges that come up when transitioning in this way um, that it sometimes can feel abrupt or disruptive for other family members who don't totally understand the why behind behind the changes um, but similarly while it can pose challenges for other members of the family it also can really really drastically improve the health of the whole entire family so I've known families who start going down this gluten-free dairy-free organic low-tax lifestyle for their child on the spectrum and then lo and behold the dad loses weight that he's been trying to lose all this time or the mom's anxiety improves so much. You know, I, I see that, that link often where um, a parent will have some sort of either anxiety or depression um, or even their other, another sort of chronic illness or autoimmune issue, right? Epigenetically, we do see these um, common trends with families and, families as a whole can improve. And I think that that is a question I wish that more people would ask me is how can this impact my entire family, the good and the bad. Mm, excellent. What book would you recommend all parents read? So I have to give it to Nourishing Hope for Autism by Julie Matthews. Um, Julie Matthews is a renowned nutritionist in the world of autism and ADHD and learning disorders. And um, she is a mentor of mine and uh, through the Bioindividual Nutrition Institute. And she, her work has truly changed my career and my life to be honest. Um, her book was one of the first that I bought on nutrition and autism. And at the time I remember opening it and being like so overwhelmed and, um, just so blown away at the same time. And I have carried her book around for about five years now. It is underlined and highlighted and tagged and all of the above. And I just, I think it's an amazing book. I think it is incredibly comprehensive. Um, and I just, I just have to applaud her so much for such a comprehensive guide for families around the world. She's done an amazing job with that book. Fantastic. What is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? Probably to write a book of my own someday. I would love to create my own sort of guide for families on holistic nutrition and low toxicant living and, and really um, go into kind of basically what we've talked about today, what we've captured, but breaking it down into almost like a workbook, if you will. I just think that that would be so huge if I could get that out into the world. Mm, incredibly useful and needed as well. Yeah. And number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Um, I would say trust your parent intuition. Um, there is no one size fits all ever. There's no wrong way. There's no right way. You have to do what's best for your family and your child. Um, you are your child's best advocate. We are the experts in our fields, but you are the expert on your child. So at the end of the day, um, you can take and soak up all the recommendations from all the specialists, but um, it's you who has to make those decisions for what is best for your child and family. And I think that would be my biggest piece of advice because 
um, like we've talked about. So often you can get that cookie cutter response and, and it's not always that black and white. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now everyone is going to want to find out more about you. How can everyone connect? Yes. So, um, I would love to connect with everybody listening. You can follow me. I'm most active um, on Speaking of Health and Wellness, LLC, on Instagram. So again, that's Instagram, Speaking of Health and Wellness, LLC. And then um, I'm on Facebook as the same, Speaking of Health and Wellness, LLC. And then I also can be reached through my website at speakingofhealthandwellness.com. I do offer distance coaching to U.S. residents at this time for mealtime, nutrition, health, wellness, development, all the above, low-tax living. And um, I'm hopeful to open up my international coaching very soon in the near future. So stay tuned for that. I will let you know. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. You have given us just a wonderful holistic perspective on how we can really um, practically, you know, what the practical things that we can go home and and start today for our kids on the spectrum. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope that this is helpful for all of your listeners, therapists, parents, everyone. I hope it's helpful. Thanks, Shandy. Take care. Thanks guys for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook. So I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, These are printables that are available on on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.